0: Okay, welcome back once again to The Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you in the wee hours of July 9th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And what I have to rant about tonight is really rather odious. We've been taking note that the uh, so-called anti-war and anti-imperialist left left is flatly on the wrong side in Ukraine. And one of the worst exponents is the now very ironically named Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR, which has been spreading disinformation in the cynical guise of opposing legitimate media efforts to Expose disinformation as itself disinformation. I mean, it's absolutely Orwellian, and it's also right in line with um, Putin's whole strategy of paradoxical fascist pseudo-anti-fascism, waging an aggressive war against Ukraine in the propaganda guise of de-Nazification, quote-unquote. And what makes it particularly maddening, is that FAIR really was a vital organization back in the 1980s when it was first getting started. Back when there were three TV networks and three big newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the LA Times, and hating Reagan and rooting for the Sandinistas was an obvious and uncomplicated position. But as the media landscape has utterly transformed in the years since then, they never updated their critique. You know, they cling to the Chomskyan paradigm that we're all being manipulated by the evil mainstream media, and we should support the plucky, heroic alternative media that are struggling to get out the truth. But what happened over the past generation is that the once hegemonic mainstream media became the Pathetically unfashionable legacy media, while social media, as it's called, has hypertrophied and bad actors, most particularly in the Kremlin, saw an unprecedented opening to influence public opinion in the United States by appealing to those on the left and the right who were alienated from the mainstream media. And has cultivated a kind of pseudo-alternative media, with these seemingly plucky, homespun, independent platforms actually being manipulated or directed from Moscow through these shadowy entities like Cambridge Analytica and the Internet Research Agency, as came to light in the investigations of Moscow's propaganda efforts on behalf of Trump in 2016 or at the very least, these pseudo-alternative media are being amplified by actual Russian state media like RT and Sputnik, which has helped to advance Russian political aims among both the left and the right in this country. And as the politics of the so-called left has deteriorated It seemed like FAIR was just kind of following the crowd, although now FAIR is so thoroughly co-opted by Russian foreign policy aims that I really have to question whether there isn't some more formal relationship there. All right, let's review some of the uh, material that FAIR has run regarding Ukraine over the course of this horrific year of 2022. Let's start with their piece. Of May 18th by Luca goldman Disinformation label serves to marginalize crucial Ukraine facts, with the word disinformation in scare quotes. His first subhead is coup conspiracy theory, with conspiracy theory in scare quotes. Now, we will have more to say later about the notion that what happened in February 2014 in Ukraine was a coup, but now let's just uh, look at what Luca Goldman-Sar has to say about it. He criticizes the New York Times for calling out Ben Norton of the gray zone as a conduit of disinformation. Now, we've pointed out before that, again, Norton and Grayzone obviously have some kind of working relationship with the Kremlin. I'm not privy to the details, but RT, which is an organ of Russian state propaganda, certainly aggressively promotes their work. So there is some kind of, at a very minimum, de facto working relationship there, which, of course, Goldman-Sor doesn't tell us, but his piece reproduces a um, a graphic from the New York Times in which they um, superimposed a diagonal thin red line across Ben Norton's face to indicate that he was spreading bullshit, to use the vernacular. And Goldman comments from the text of his article, the New York Times, April 11th, drew a red line through Benjamin Norton for advancing the conspiracy theory, quote-unquote, that, quote, U.S. officials had installed the leaders of the current Ukrainian government, end quote. Eight years ago, the Times, February 6, 2014, reported as straight news the fact that U.S., quote, diplomats candidly discussed the composition of a possible new government to replace the pro-Russian cabinet of Ukraine's president end quote. Okay, those are two different things. Installing and discussing are not synonyms. And furthermore, the government that was installed, not by the U.S., by the way, but the government that was installed in February 2014 is not the current Ukrainian government. Unlike in Russia, which has been ruled by a single strong man for over 20 years now, there have been two, not one, but two, changes of government in Ukraine by normal electoral means since February of 2014. So this is just insidiously misleading propaganda. The Goldman Sachs goes on to refer to, quote, Nuland's apparent coup plotting and, quote, and, quote, the U.S. campaign to destabilize Ukraine, end quote. Now, this all hinges on an apparent conversation between then Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland and the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, which um, appeared on YouTube in February 2014 at the climax of the Maidan Revolution. Now, conspiracy theorists are always beloved of the gotcha document or the leaked phone call transcript. But I'm not seeing that there is anything at all surprising here. This is two State Department functionaries having a conversation about who they'd like to see in power in Ukraine. That's it. A total nothing burger. The kind of thing that happens all the time. Functionaries in the diplomatic corps of a great power talking about what faction they should support in another country. Happens every day. And the two supposedly critical quotes from Newland are, quote, fuck the EU, <laughs> presumably for um, being reticent to meddle in Ukraine, and quote, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience for governing experience, end quote. Now, this is a reference to Arseny Yatsenyuk, who was an opposition member of the Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, who would become prime minister after Viktor Yanukovych was ousted as president, the big demand of the protesters in Maidan Square. Yatsenyuk did not, in fact, become president, that is, top dog. One, Alexander Turchinov, another opposition lawmaker, was installed as interim president, and then in May, Petro Poroshenko, the former foreign minister, became the new president, who in 2016 had Yatsenyuk ousted as prime minister. So if Newland's phone call is uh, evidence of a U.S.-backed coup, it certainly was not a particularly successful one. But note the crazy fucking double standard here. Some State Department functionaries have a phone call, and that's a coup but Russian-backed forces illegally seized power by force of arms in Crimea and Donbas that same year, and that's not a coup? Whatever, guys. You know, this is cheapening the meaning of the word coup, and ironically, playing into the hands of those who would deny CIA involvement in the actual coups d'etat in Iran in 1952. Guatemala in 1954, Indonesia in 1965, Chile in 1973, etc. This is how the left just shoots itself in the foot. And uh, by the way, I want to know who bugged Nuland's phone call. I mean, that's an actually interesting question which nobody is asking. And note Goldman language the U.S. campaign to destabilize Ukraine, quote unquote a reference to the struggle by the Ukrainians to challenge the corrupt authoritarian regime of Viktor Yanukovych. I love how in FAIR's world, the only thing that Ukrainians can be is either pawns of the U.S. State Department or Nazis. So sickening. And now this brings us to the uh, the next subhead, Normalizing Neo-Nazis. From the text the outsized influence of neo-Nazi groups in Ukrainian society. And here he links to a uh, Human Rights Watch report of June 2018, violent attacks by radical groups increasing in Ukraine, including the Azov Regiment, the explicitly neo-Nazi branch of Ukraine's National Guard, is another fact that has been dismissed as disinformation end quote. Well, yeah, because it's disinformation. I advise Goldman Sore to listen to our podcast here on the Counter Vortex of um, April 17th, entitled Antifa and the Azov Battalion. And you will find that no, the Azov Battalion is not explicitly neo-Nazi. That is a sloppy overstatement at best, that its Nazi nostalgist early leadership was purged shortly after its formation in 2014, when it was absorbed into the Ukrainian National Guard. But uh, as long as you're um, citing Human Rights Watch, Goldman Sachs, why don't you see what Human Rights Watch has to say about the Russian aggression that you are essentially shilling for? You want to know where in Ukrainian society neo-Nazi groups really have an outsized influence? in the regions of the Donbass, where ultra-right separatists backed by Russia have seized power and are now in the process of conquering all of Donbass thanks to the massive Russian invasion on their behalf. We've noted before the September 2014 Human Rights Watch report on the mass detention of civilians and their use in forced labor by the Donbass rebels in their zones of control. What? No fascism here. And we've also noted before that the Donbass rebels have just as much of a fetish for Nazi symbols and regalia as do their enemies in the Azov battalion, portraying only the Ukrainian side as having a Nazi problem, is playing right into Putin's ultra-cynical fascist pseudo-anti-fascism, the most cynical propaganda imaginable, and it's being enabled by fairness and accuracy in reporting. Unbelievable. All right, now let's turn to the next entry, January 15th. Hawkish pundits downplay threat of war. Ukraine's Nazi Ties by Gregory Shupak. And once again, the title itself is indicative of how out of whack their thinking is. The hawkish pundits were certainly not downplaying the threat of war. They were downplaying the threat of U.S. involvement in the war. They were not downplaying the threat of Russia invading Ukraine, just the opposite, of course. But Russian aggression is absolutely 100% invisible in the world of fairness and accuracy in reporting. We're again treated to the subhead, whitewashing Nazis. Inevitably, we are told of the official honoring in Ukraine of the World War II-era Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, OUN, and Ukrainian Insurgent Army, UPA, and one Lev Galenkin in The Nation, of course, is quoted to the effect that they were, quote, allied with the Nazis and participated in the Holocaust. The UPA murdered thousands of Jews, end quote. Okay, this would appear to be a reference to the Lviv Pogrom of 1941, after the Nazis seized the city, and whether the Ukrainian insurgent army participated in it is actually a matter of some contention. I just finished reading The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine by Serhii Plaki, which makes no mention of it in his discussion of the UPA, and he's the director of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, so one would hope that he has some authority on the matter, and you could um, also consult the website of the Ukraine Crisis Media Center, a watchdog on false propaganda on Ukraine, which has a page entitled, 10 Myths About the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. Myth number five, Ukrainian nationalists were massively killing Jews during World War II, especially in Lviv. And this page cites both German and Soviet records, apparently indicating that the UPA did not participate in the killings in Lviv. Now, I don't know who was right. To get an informed opinion, you'd actually have to do the research, which I have not done, and I suspect that Gregory Shupak hasn't either, but is simply quoting Galenkin as the voice of authority, just as one could as easily cite the Ukraine Crisis Media Center as the voice of authority. And as we pointed out in our last podcast of July 3rd, in which we discussed the legacy of Stepan Bandera, leader of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, according to Serhii Ploki's book, Bandera's period of Nazi collaboration was a matter of a week or two after the invasion in June 1941 after which they slapped him in a concentration camp for refusing to renounce his declaration of Ukrainian independence. Now, followers of the Counter Vortex podcast will know that, uh, you know, I've been making a really honest effort to parse this history and try to come to an objective understanding of what went on in that era in Ukraine. But um, it smells to me that fairness and accuracy in reporting is weaponizing the history and deciding what to believe on the basis of political convenience. Schuback goes on to, right? From the text, this is the kind of thing that Fair is famous for doing. <clears throat> From December 6, 2021 to January 6, 2022, the New York Times published 228 articles that refer to Ukraine, nine of which contain some variation on the word Nazi zero percent of these note Ukrainian government apologia for Nazis or the presence of pro-Nazi elements in Ukraine's armed forces, end quote. Well, first of all, both of these contentions are overstated. The Ukrainian government is not apologizing for Nazis, but Ukrainian nationalists who, in the midst of the horror and shifting fortunes of World War II, at times collaborated with Nazis, and at times resisted the Nazis by arms, something that propaganda of this nature never mentions. And again, we're supposed to take it as a fait accompli that there are, quote, pro-Nazi elements in Ukraine's armed forces. But okay, what about your whitewashing of Nazis, Gregory Shupak, as you bait the Ukrainians like this Has there been a word, a single word in your writing, or in anything that has been published by FAIR, about the Sparta Battalion, about Rusik, about the Imperial Legion, about the Russian Imperial Movement, about the Night Wolves, about the Wagner Group, about the Griffin Cossacks, all of these Nazi nostalgist or neo-fascist formations fighting on the Russian side. And we will again point out the photo evidence, which has been posted to our website, Counter Vortex, of troops from the Donetsk People's Republic, quote-unquote, wearing the SS Totenkopf, or death's head, and other Nazi symbols. And I will also argue that the Z symbol, adopted by the Russian armed forces for their special military operation, has in practice become a new swastika. As far as I'm concerned, in context, that's exactly what it is. By their works shall ye know them. If it behaves like fascism, it is fascism, and its symbol is a fascist symbol. So again, fair is playing right into Putin's fascist pseudo-anti-fascism, the propaganda that his aggression against Ukraine, which is straight out of Hitler's nineteen thirty nine playbook, is a campaign of denazification. You are whitewashing Nazis, Gregory Shupak. You are normalizing neo Nazis, Luca Goldmansor. Cast the beam from thine own eye to quote the Bible again. <clears throat> But then we get to the one that's really getting a lot of circulation. January 28th, What You Should Really Know About Ukraine, by Bryce Green, with the word really in italics. Now, my rule is never trust anything entitled What You Should Really Know About Something. It's a perfect tip-off of oversimplified dogmatism. Now, this is a response to a piece... um, that ran in the Washington Post last November 26th, entitled, What You Need to Know About Tensions Between Ukraine and Russia. And yet, that kind of headline is also kind of annoying, but it's merely a tip-off of oversimplification. The word really, especially when it's in italics, is a tip-off that the writer thinks that he's giving you the truth with a capital T- Okay, now early on in the piece, Bryce Green makes a legitimate point about the um, International Monetary Fund agenda in Ukraine of um, shrinking the state sector and inviting in more foreign capital. Yeah, okay, that's a totally legit thing to discuss and critique, as does Yulia Yurchenko in her book, Ukraine and the Empire of Capital, which we discussed on our podcast of June 27th. But Yurchenko absolutely would not go along with what Bryce Green does next, which is to portray all of the opposition to the corrupt, oligarchic, kleptocratic, Moscow-friendly regime of Viktor Yanukovych as a U.S.-backed intrigue. From the text, coup plotters like U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland repeatedly stressed the need for the Ukrainian government to enact the necessary reforms. End quote. Coup plotters? Get out of here, Bryce. You're just mouthing empty propaganda. There wasn't any coup. And a phone call in which two functionaries discuss their favorite candidate in Ukraine isn't a plot. And he goes on to write, quote, After the 2014 coup the new government quickly restarted the EU deal, end quote, which had been rejected by Yanukovych in favor of closer integration with Russia. Now, we aren't told why this is necessarily a bad thing, but more to the point, it's accepting as a fait accompli that it was a coup rather than a pro-democratic popular revolution. With the transfer of power finally, after months of mass protests, in the face of brutal repression in the middle of the harsh Ukrainian winter, affected by legal and nonviolent means. But as we shall see, he contests it. In fact, it was legal. We'll get to that. Next, we are treated to this totally jaundiced subhead. The U.S. helped overthrow Ukraine's elected president. Yeah, nothing about this elected president's gutting of constitutional changes limiting executive power, his dictatorship laws, as they were called, that banned public protest encampments, his unleashing of the riot police on peaceful protesters. No, instead we are told, quote, the U.S. was fueling anti-government sentiment through mechanisms like USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy, end quote so condescending to the Ukrainians as if they needed tutelage from USAID or the National Endowment for Democracy to know that they were being oppressed by a corrupt authoritarian oligarch. Heaven forbid that some of our tax dollars should actually be put to a good use, like buying laptops for pro-democracy activists. How insidious. So return to the text. The U.S. government had spent $5 billion promoting democracy, in scare quotes, in Ukraine since 1991, end quote. Why the scare quotes, Bryce? See, this is how this insidious propaganda works. You use scare quotes around democracy when referring to Ukraine, which actually has been experiencing a democratic renewal since the Maidan revolution with free elections and peaceful transitions of power, and say nothing about the personalistic dictatorship of Vladimir Putin, which is being consolidated in Russia. And the uninitiated reader comes away with the impression, a complete reversal of reality, that Ukraine is a dictatorship and Russia is a democracy. And again, fair plays into Putin's fascist pseudo anti fascism and denazification propaganda. Bryce Green next presents us with some interesting facts from the text. The NED board of directors includes Elliot Abrams, whose sordid record runs from the Iran Contra affair in the 80s to the Trump administration's effort. To overthrow the Venezuelan government. In 2013, NED President Carl Gershman wrote a piece in the Washington Post that described Ukraine as the biggest prize, quote unquote, in the East West rivalry. After the Obama administration, Newland joined the NED Board of Directors before returning to the State Department and the Biden administration as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs end quote. Yeah, okay, good to know. Appreciate the research, but certainly not surprising. I mean, who do you think is going to be on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy? It's an arm of the U.S. government, as we know. And if you are concluding from this information that any activist under a dictatorship or authoritarian regime who accepts any aid from the NED is tainted and delegitimized, well, you aren't interested in actually understanding things. You're just interested in scoring propaganda points in favor of dictatorships and authoritarian regimes. Now, if you want to warn the Ukrainian activists about the imperialist agendas of the U.S. State Department and the National Endowment for Democracy, well, it's a little condescending to assume that they have any illusions. But more to the point, Warning them could be a legitimate activity if you started from assumptions of solidarity with the protesters. Instead, this information is being weaponized to discredit the protesters and to portray their revolution as a Nazi coup. So just get out of here with that. The next subhead reads... U.S. officials were caught picking the new government. Well, no, they weren't. We've already been through this, but let's see what he has to say. From the text, on February 22nd, after a massacre by suspicious snipers brought tensions to a head, the Ukrainian parliament quickly removed Yanukovych from office in a constitutionally questionable maneuver. Yanukovych then fled the country, calling the overthrow a coup on february twenty seventh Yatsenyuk, Newland's favorite, became prime minister end quote Now the phrase "suspicious snipers quote unquote is linked text, taking us to a story about the conspiracy theory that the snipers who fired on the demonstrators on february twentieth twenty fourteen were provocateurs from the demonstrators themselves, firing on their own people the same odious false flag jive that we get over and over. I'm sorry. If this isn't a conspiracy theory, I don't know what is. You guys are in no position, fair, to be complaining about people using the word conspiracy theories when you uh, legitimize this kind of speculation. And as we pointed out, Yatsenyuk became Prime Minister, not President, and would ultimately be ousted by the President. The next subhead, Washington used Nazis to help overthrow the government. From the text, the Washington-backed opposition that toppled the government was fueled by far-right and openly Nazi elements like the right sector. One far-right group that grew out of the protest was the Azov Battalion, a paramilitary militia of neo-Nazi extremists. Their leaders made up the vanguard of the anti yanukovych protests, and even spoke at opposition events in the Maidan alongside U.S. regime change advocates like McCain and Newland. end quote. Well, for starters, I'll just briefly point out that Azov battalion grew out of the struggle in Donbass more than out of the Maidan movement. But uh, let's move on to a much more important point. Let's contrast this portrayal with that in an open letter issued by Ukrainian academics in February 2014, responding precisely to this calumny in Western media accounts. The letter was entitled, Two Journalists, Commentators, and Analysts, writing on the Ukraine protest movement, Euromaidan. From the text of this letter, from Ukrainian academics to the world media, while we are critical of far-right activities in the Euromaidan movement, we are nonetheless disturbed by a dangerous tendency in too many international media reports dealing with the recent events in Ukraine. An increasing number of lay assessments of the Ukraine protest movement, to one degree or another, misrepresent the role, salience, and impact of Ukraine's far right within the protest movement. Numerous reports allege that the pro-European movement is being infiltrated, driven, or taken over by radically ethnocentrist groups of the lunatic fringe. Some presentations create the misleading impression that ultra-nationalist actors and ideas are at the core or helm of the Ukrainian protests. Graphic pictures, juicy quotes, sweeping comparisons, and dark historical references are in high demand. They are combined with a disproportionate consideration of one particularly visible, yet politically minor, segment within the confusing mosaic that is formed by the hundreds of thousands of protesters with their different motivations, backgrounds, and aims. The resistance in Kyiv includes representatives from all political camps as well as non-ideological persons not only the peaceful protesters, but also those using sticks, stones, and even Molotov cocktails in their physical confrontations with police special units and government-directed thugs constitute a broad movement that is not centralized. Most protesters only turned violent in response to increasing police ferocity and the radicalization of Yanukovych's regime. The demonstrators include liberals and conservatives, socialists and libertarians, nationalists and cosmopolitans, Christians, non-Christians, and atheists, Unquote. So maybe listen to what Ukrainians have to say about what's going on in their own country. Hey, just a thought. And again, I don't know why you would oppose regime change in this circumstance. You know, There really are regimes that need to be changed, and calling a popular revolution regime change is just a means of discrediting it as neocon astroturf or whatever. And no movement of the size and power of the Maidan revolution could be astroturf. But it gets even more problematic with the next subhead. There's a lot more to the Crimean annexation. Oh, boy. From the text, the Crimean Peninsula, 82% of whose households speak Russian, and only 2% mainly Ukrainian, held a plebiscite in March 2014 on whether or not they should join Russia or remain under the new Ukrainian government the pro-Russia camp won with 95% of the vote. The UN General Assembly, led by the U.S., voted to ignore the referendum results on the grounds that it was contrary to Ukraine's constitution. This same constitution that had been set aside to oust President Yanukovych a month earlier, end quote. All right, there's a lot to unpack here, but, um, Let's start by examining that last claim that the uh, Ukrainian Constitution had been set aside to oust President Yanukovych. Uh, Had it, indeed? All this hinges on a narrow legalism, but if you want to get into it, okay. After digging around, the most convincing piece that I could find online, casting doubt on the constitutionality of the removal of Yanukovych, was Surprise, surprise, on Radio Free Europe, media wing of the U.S. State Department. (laughs) So much for the notion of even the U.S. State Department being monolithically behind the coup, quote unquote. This piece, entitled Was Yanukovych's Ouster Constitutional, ran immediately after the vote, and states, from the text... It is not clear that the hasty February 22nd vote upholds constitutional guidelines, which call for a review of the case by Ukraine's constitutional court and a three-fourths majority vote by the Verkhovna Rada, i.e. 338 lawmakers. In fact, the vote was approved by 320 lawmakers of the 450-seat parliament. All right, that's a case, ironically from Radio Free Europe, but (laughs) okay, it's a case. But in contrast, let's turn to an April 2015 piece from the Kharkiv Human Rights Protection Group, Ukraine's foremost human rights monitoring group, which defends the constitutionality of the ouster. This piece is entitled Ukrainian Constitutional Process in 2014. And it argues that because Yanukovych had already gone into hiding by the time the vote was taken, and had effectively abdicated his duties, that contingency measures in the Constitution for such an emergency situation were invoked, and that the Constitution was, in fact, adhered to. From the text, the Parliament Resolution on Disassociation of the President from February 22nd, 2014, was based on the recognition of the fact that President of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, illegally dissociated from his constitutional powers, which endangered the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine and rights and freedoms of its citizens. Being aware of this and proceeding from the paramount necessity, the Verkhovna Rada of Ukraine decided, quote, the fact is hereby established that the president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, in an unconstitutional manner, has dissociated from the exercise of constitutional powers and is one who does not fulfill his duties, end quote. On this basis, in accordance with paragraph seven of Part 1 of Article eighty five of the Constitution of Ukraine, the Parliament scheduled the date of early presidential elections in Ukraine for may twenty fifth, twenty fourteen. In turn, based on the decision of the Verkovna Rada, approved on February 23rd, 2014, Speaker O. Turkinov was vested with the function of the acting president of Ukraine in accordance with Article 112 of the Constitution of Ukraine, end quote and the aforementioned uh, Turkanov served as Speaker of the Rada for um, exactly one day. He was um, elected to that position February 22nd, and then became interim president February 23rd. That's why he's referred to with the title Speaker. So I'd say the notion that the transfer of power in Ukraine in 2014 was unconstitutional hinges on narrow legalisms at best, and is possibly just flat wrong. Now, again, I don't know because I haven't done the research, which would be pretty daunting for me as a uh, mere journalist who is not, you know, a legal expert, much less one who is fluent in the Ukrainian constitution. But I have a strong hunch that Bryce Green hasn't done the research either and is once again making up his mind on the basis of political convenience. But okay, let's assume purely for the sake of argument that the removal of Yanukovych was unconstitutional. Okay, Are you really arguing that one constitutional violation justifies another? Really? And certainly, the unconstitutionality of the Crimea vote did not hinge on any narrow legalisms. There was no provision for Crimean secession in the Ukrainian constitution. And even Moscow asserted that the vote was only justified because Yanukovych was ousted in an illegal coup which ended Ukraine's constitutional authority, which, as we have seen, is a dubious assertion. And that um, supposedly U.S.-led General Assembly resolution, it was actually introduced by Canada, Costa Rica, Germany, Lithuania, Poland, and Ukraine. And it wasn't merely that the election violated the Ukrainian constitution, but that it was not carried out according to international norms. But the worst thing about this is Bryce Green's evident attitude of fuck the Crimean Tartars, who he doesn't even mention, the indigenous Turkic and Muslim people of the Crimean Peninsula, who are now being oppressed under Putin's white supremacist Russo nationalist program. The jurisdictional autonomy over their own territory that they had enjoyed under Ukrainian rule being revoked, their leaders persecuted and imprisoned for dissenting from having Russian rule imposed on them against their will, being subject to systematic attacks that they say amount to ethnic cleansing, and the Russian state has even broached, establishing a concentration camp system for them, modeled on that which China is imposing on the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Ignoring this, for so-called progressives to be ignoring this, is the most shameful betrayal imaginable. All in all, Bryce Green is making excuses for a Sudetenland, if you get the historical reference. And if you don't, Google it, because I'm tired of having to explain everything. What else does he say? His next sub is, the U.S. wants to expand NATO. Yeah? So? Ukraine's admission into NATO was still years away at best. And if Ukraine is a sovereign country, it has the right to join any damn alliance it wants. And if Putin didn't want Ukraine to join NATO, maybe he could have considered refraining from the kind of behavior that was driving Ukraine into NATO. As we've stated before, on independence from the USSR in 1991, Ukraine made a declaration of permanent neutrality. And it was only in 2019 that the RADA actually codified into the Constitution the country's aspiration to join NATO after Russia had attacked the country and illegally annexed pieces of its territory, both de facto, as in the Donbass, and de jure, as in Crimea, which Bryce Green is making excuses for. And I'll point out Russia's own leadership of the C-S-T-O, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, its own military alliance of post-Soviet states. Did Ukraine have some right to invade Russia? Because Russia threatens it as a member of the C-S-T-O? Examine your double standards. And the next subhead reads, the U.S. wouldn't tolerate what Russia is expected to accept. Well, The word expected is loaded and naive, but again, note that it's all about the U.S. Everything is about the great powers talking over the heads of the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians themselves have no voice or reality in FAIR's world. They, the Ukrainians, are the ones who are not willing to give Putin a veto over what alliances they could join which essentially means surrendering some of their sovereignty. But what they have to say doesn't matter when you're completely indoctrinated in imperial narcissism and everything is about the U.S. And then Bryce Green again poses Ukrainian neutrality as a solution with no acknowledgement whatsoever of why Ukraine abandoned its official and declared position of neutrality. Russian aggression is the elephant in the room that fair is incapable of seeing. And I'll just point out one last one by Bryce Green from March 4th, several days into the invasion, entitled Calling Russia's Attack Unprovoked, quote unquote. Let's US off the hook. Absolutely unbelievable, recycling once again all the disinformation about the so-called Maidan coup. "Quote unquote. but this is so insidiously sinister, as if Ukraine, after having its national territory being dismantled by Russian aggression, seeks to join—not joins, but seeks to join NATO for protection. This means that Russia's greater aggression of 2022 was provoked." Quote unquote. This is legitimizing the invasion if it was provoked, quote unquote, that implies that it's legitimate under international law, unless you're just throwing words around without any regard for their meaning. This is justifying criminal aggression and is just beneath contempt. Okay, and up with dissecting this propaganda, I will note that I have had to um, call out FAIR before for promoting Kremlin-promoted voices. In, um... April 2019, after the Mueller report was released, Fair ran a piece entitled Tips for a Post-Mueller Media from Nine Russiagate Skeptics, promoting nine so-called evidence-based journalists, and, quote, as an alternative to those who actually acknowledged that there was Trump-Putin collusion in the 2016 election on the basis of the, um, evidence. Again, just complete reversal of reality, even right in their headline. And this statement was written by Katie Halper, who we've discussed before, who wears the accusation that she is a useful idiot for Russia as a badge of pride. Useful idiots, quote-unquote, is actually the presumably sarcastic name of the podcast that she co-hosts with the equally problematic Matt Taibbi obsessively bashing what she calls the Russiagate racket, quote-unquote. Halper echoes the Russian line on Syria, even featuring an interview on her podcast with the Assad regime flak Rania Kaleck, whose Kremlin front platform, In the Now, is directly funded by RT, Organ of Russian State Propaganda. And who does she promote in this piece that she ran, uh, on the FAIR website in April 2019? Well, guess what? <laughs> the aforementioned Rania Kolek, whose platform is directly funded by Russia, Aaron Maté, then of The Nation, now with Zone, whose work toes the Kremlin line 100% and is avidly promoted, once again by Kremlin state media, such as RT, uh, her own co-host on her podcast Matt Taibbi of course and i will now note that uh, Matt Taibbi after the invasion of ukraine was launched actually apologized for having insisted russia wouldn't invade ukraine he actually said quote when you're wrong you're wrong my mistake was being so fixated on western misbehavior that i didn't bother to take the possibility seriously enough end quote so is it possible that he's actually been chastened? Dare we hope? Maybe there's actually hope for <laughs> if He's capable of admitting he was wrong. Imagine. Okay, next is Jimmy Dore, who is literally on the take from the Assad dictatorship lobby. As I uh, wrote on my website in 2019, the investigative website Bellingcat on September 30th ran an expose on the Association for Investment in Popular Action Committees, note the acronym, APAC Cute, huh? Obviously spoofing the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. But this uh, pro-Assad APAC runs an uh, award for uncompromised integrity in journalism, quote-unquote, which has lavished many thousands of dollars on journalists, quote-unquote, who tow the pro-Assad line. Among those winners is Jimmy Dore, a comedian turned political commentator who was employed by the Young Turks, a progressive video outlet, until April 2019. According to an IRS filing, however, Dore actually began receiving money from the association behind the Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism, in 2017, receiving $2,500 for what the latter described as, quote, human rights media, end quote. That same year, Dor would argue that a chemical weapons attack on the opposition-held town of Khan Shikun was likely a quote, false flag, unquote, the bodies of the dead children having been planted, perhaps by extremists. The United Nations has confirmed that the Syrian government, the only party to the conflict known to possess the sarin and an air force, was responsible, end quote. So unbelievable. Here we have fairness and accuracy in reporting promoting literal paid propagandists for genocidal dictatorships. And I'm just going to close by noting a piece that ran in the Washington Post on March 8th of this year, entitled, Tucker Carlson Goes Full Blame America on Russia's Ukraine Invasion, by their political commentator Aaron Blake. From the text, Tucker Carlson's remarkably Putin-sympathetic view of the war in Ukraine has yet to catch on with large swaths of the conservative movement, but if it doesn't, it apparently won't be for lack of trying. Carlson lately has tempered his unfortunately timed suggestion that perhaps Vladimir Putin isn't that bad a guy. But Carlson on Monday, which would have been March 7th, drove home an argument that has lingered on the fringes of the conservative movement for some time, that the United States and the West invited this war with their support for admitting Ukraine into NATO, a step that Russia finds unacceptable, end quote. And then there's a bunch of um, ugly and stupid quotes from Tucker Carlson, the far-right extremist commentator from Fox News, to the effect that the United States is to blame for Russia invading Ukraine. And thank you to Aaron Blake of The Washington Post for calling it out. And this is what FAIR should be doing critiquing Fox News for loaning propaganda cover to Putin's war of aggression. But instead, it falls to the Washington Post to do that, while FAIR actually joins with Fox News in loaning propaganda cover to Putin. I'm done. I have never been so disgusted in my life. To hell with you fairness and accuracy in reporting. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org where everything that I've had to say on this podcast is documented in hyperlinks. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the Resistance and rant on you next time.